Okay, I'm going to combine chapters 25 and 26 in the book of Job. You know, although they're they're spoken by different men, um, Bildad gives his third speech in chapter 25, and because his his speech is so short, I I thought I would just um, combine his speech with Job's rebuttal in chapter 26 and do those two together. Um, these two chapters, they mark a turning point in the book of Job. Um, after, this, after this episode, we won't hear from Job's three friends again for the rest of the book. This is their final, um, this is their final speeches. Um, you know, now before, before the Lord enters the scene, so to speak, uh, we're going to hear from another man named Elihu, uh, in a later chapter, but besides that, the the rest of the book was is just going to be Job's words, and finally, um, God Himself is going to make an appearance to set all the records straight and to make sure everybody knows uh, what actually has been going on this entire time as they've been um, struggling to come to grips with suffering and, and why it happened and, and what's going on. If you remember in the last chapter, Job began to cry out about what seemed like like to him uh, God's lack of justice. Job well understands God's sovereignty. We've seen that before. And he believes it wholeheartedly. So um, we know that. But he just can't come to grips with his friend's assertion that God's sovereignty will always punish the wicked with suffering in this life, and it will always reward the righteous with blessings in this life. Um, we saw earlier that Eliphaz gave us a, a pretty good description of what hell looks like, although he didn't you know, understand that that is what he was doing in his mind. Uh, his description of God's perfect justice is taking place all around us right now. It's uh, in this life. It's not in the next life. So his counsel to Job was, uh, since the God is this way, if you repent of whatever it is that you've done, you know, all your life will be restored. We saw Job's response to this in the last two chapters. He he looked around and basically told Eliphaz that, you know, man, you're you're pretty much full of it. You know, look around you. The wicked people are prospering all over. And uh, Job here is a righteous man, and he's suffering, you know, unimaginable suffering. So uh, Eliphaz's assertion can't be correct. So on the heels of all this, on the heels of Job rebuking Eliphaz, now Bildad is going to speak for the last time, and he's going to attempt to fix Job's suffering, of course, once again. Uh, but in this chapter, Bildad is going to try to convince Job that he cannot be righteous before God, as he believes he is, uh, because it is impossible for any man to be right with God. Now, we know that in a sense, Bildad is correct. Uh, no man can hope to stand before God and be declared righteous in his own strength. Uh, no one has done good through his own flesh, not even one. That's Romans chapter 3, um, quoting from Isaiah and the Psalms. Um, but we have also seen that God declared Job righteous in the very first chapter. 
Uh, and we know, as we take the scripture as a whole, it's not because of Job's own works, but because of the faith and the faithful sacrifices that Job offered. Uh, and, of course, we know that those sacrifices pointed to the perfect sacrifice. So Job is a righteous man, as far as God's concerned. Uh, we've heard it come straight from God's mouth, that Job is a righteous man. Um, so we've seen this in almost every chapter of Job, so this shouldn't be anything new. Um, but the gospel is really central to the book of Job, even though you know I, there's a lot of commentary, there's a lot of uh, scholarly consensus, and a lot of preaching that that completely miss the gospel here in Job. So we know that Bildad has a valid point that man can't be right with God, but we've also seen that the three friends' worldview um, it doesn't make room for God's grace, which is given through faith. Um, there's no room in their thinking for God who would declare a sinful man righteous. Uh, you know, just based on a substitutionary sacrifice. So, once again, we hear advice coming from an individual, here it's Bildad, who doesn't have a full-orbed and balanced view of God, and he doesn't have a, a biblical worldview of man either. For him, God is nothing more than... Um, a balanced beam of right and wrong. He punishes the wicked and gives good things to the righteous. And it all takes place in this life. And man is uh, basically good, so God's going to give him all these blessings. And if man does something wrong, it's only then that he suffers. And we, we've seen the the fault in that worldview completely. Man is not basically good. He is utterly sinful. Uh, the three friends that are talking to Job right now are counseling Job as if they were righteous men not going through suffering and Job was somehow sinful going through all that he's going through but at the end of the book we will see that the opposite is the case God will uh, chastise those three friends for representing him wrongly and uh, he will give Job back um, twice what he had now he's going to chastise Job as well but for a different reason um, so once again we see Bildad is going to assert God's sovereignty. Uh, this is something Job has totally agreed with in previous chapters. So Bildad isn't introducing a new idea here. He's uh, he's using what we've already agreed upon as a foundation for his next premise, that no man can be what Job is claiming to be. Um, in the first three verses of chapter 25, he says, Then Bildad... Bildad the, the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? For Bildad, God alone has dominion in the heavens. And we know this to be true. This is something uh, you know we can all agree on. We should all agree on. Dominion and, and fear are with God. He alone is the one who decides who has peace with him. His armies and wrath are everywhere. The whole of the universe is in subjection to him. When uh, when Bilad says, upon whom does his light not arise, he's making sure Job knows that there is no place that anyone can hide from an all-seeing, all-knowing, sovereign God. 
Um, there's nothing man can do in the face of such an omnipotent God. He's in control, and his rule is unquestionable. So Bildad is inferring that Job should never try to be justified before God. He should stop saying that he's righteous. He should not be trying to to bring his case to God, you know, so that God could hear his case as if Job had the uh, Job had the right or the authority to. Uh, to speak before God at all. All these ideas coming from Job's head, you know, they can end in nothing but tragedy for him. Uh, the proper response, Bildad is asserting here, is, is to just bow in subjection and affirm that he has done evil, which has resulted in God punishing him. Uh, that's what Bildad's counsel is to Job. Just, just even if you don't know what it was, you just bow your head and say, you know what? God, forgive me because I know I must have done something. And, you know, it it may seem contradictory to us because we who have trusted in Christ, we, we have no problem bowing our head and repenting and those things. But in a sense, um, uh, what he's asking, if to put it in a modern context, what Bildad is asking Job to do is basically, if he, if Job was living today after the cross and Job was a Christian, Bildad would be asking Job to set aside the righteousness that is provided by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and uh, seek for another kind of righteousness. That's what he would be asking. Uh, he is not saying, well, you just need to repent, and Job's saying, I don't have to repent because I'm perfect. Uh, that's not what's going on. What Job's uh, foundational argument is that uh, God promised that through faith and through the sacrifices that Job did every morning for his, his family and himself, that those sins would be covered. And so his friends are saying, no, 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 that's not how God's going to work. And so basically what they were doing was trying to get him to repudiate the sacrifices that he had offered and to understand that those things were um, we're not doing any good to make him righteous before God. And uh, for us, that would be the same as saying, you know, Jesus did not pay for all my sins. I have more to atone for. And that's something that no Christian should ever do. And if you do, then it proves that you're not a Christian. But uh, it's something that Job was not willing to do. So we can see application all through the book of Job for um, for the gospel. Um now, in a sense, I can see where Bildad's coming from as far as just telling Job to repent, but but he's left out, I mean, he's left out important aspects of God's nature. Um, you know, he's well-versed in God's might, God's justice, God's judgment, you know, and, and he's correct. God will punish all the wicked, you know, uh, but he... He's completely left out God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, the things that we see over and over again in Scripture. Bildad's worldview doesn't make room for any kind of grace or any kind of forgiveness. There is no way a suffering uh, sinner who is obviously being punished for his crimes can bring God to court <laughs> and expect to gain anything. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, now, of course, we saw that Bildad is is discounting you know, the sacrificial system. Uh, that Job uh, is claiming to live under, in which points toward the true sacrifice. So, in the last three verses of these chapter, or in the first three verses of this chapter, uh, Bildad ends uh, his discourse uh, by trying to show Job that no sinner is being punished by God 
uh, and can stand before him. Um, the, the chapter, what I mean to say, the chapter is only six verses. And so in the next three verses, we'll put it that way, uh, Bildad is going to try to show Job. He's going to try to make his argument, and he's going to end his speaking uh, by showing Job that uh, if a person is going through suffering, um, that uh, he cannot uh, be the righteous man that Job claims that he is. Uh, God is sovereign and powerful, and man is just feeble. And if God has chosen to punish Job for his crimes, then just Job doesn't have any hope of gaining anything by bringing his case before God. Um, let's just read it. In Bildad's view, man cannot be just before God. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 4 says, How then can man be right, be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Job, you're out of your mind if you think you're pure before God. That's basically what he's saying. Anyone suffering like this can't be right before God. How can a man who is born of woman be pure and righteous anyway, Job? Are you insane? Uh, It's impossible. And we know in uh, in and of ourselves that Bildad's right. Uh, No man is perfect or righteous before God unless you take into account the righteousness of the sacrificed substitute. Job isn't righteous in and of himself. He's righteous because of his faithful sacrifices. Believer, you're not righteous in and of yourself. You're righteous because Jesus gave his life for you. And that's what Bildad is missing. That's what so many people are missing. And especially when we go through suffering, we get to thinking, well, God just hates me. God's punishing me. God's, you know, it may be the case that God's disciplining you, but you cannot set aside the uh, perfect uh, sacrifice that Jesus made that gives us God's perfect righteousness and start to seek a different kind of righteousness just because you are suffering and you think God somehow has is punishing you. So Bildad ends ends by saying in verse 5, he says, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less, how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Job has several times placed uh, his faith in a mediator that will stand between him and God, offering grace and forgiveness through sacrifice. We saw that in previous chapters. And Bildad here is flat out denying that that's so. He says if you know if the, if the heavenly bodies aren't even pure in God's eyes, how in the world can a man who is nothing more than a worm or maggot be? Um, there's no room for grace or forgiveness. A, a sinner is a sinner and he must be punished and he will be punished. And this shows me that Bildad and his friends are very inconsistent in their theology. They, they repeatedly say that man can't be right before God but their own words and actions display the fact that they believe that they themselves are doing a better job uh, of being right before God than Job is. They are, you know, the the friends right now are free from suffering. And so they feel like, hey, they're in a perfect position to tell Job what he should be doing. Now, Bildad's saying, well, no man is righteous. Well, Bildad, if that's the case, that means you're not righteous either. And if you're not righteous, how come you're not suffering? Uh, the whole thing falls apart on its face. So then... That was the final uh, speech of Bildad. So now we come to chapter 26 and Job's final response uh, to Bildad's assertions. 
Uh, and by now, I can imagine that Job is feeling pulled in a hundred different directions. He's he's battled against their system in a bunch of different ways. They were uh, there were times when he agreed with some of their premises, but he can't accept their conclusions. And you know, what, like for example, all, all these men accept the fact that God is sovereign and in control. Everybody in the room, so to speak. Uh, accepts this, but the friends can't see God exerting that control in love and grace. Job, on the other hand, understands that his life of, of faith and sacrifices is precipitated by God's mercy and grace, but he can't understand how God's justice can be reconciled with everything that Job sees going around him. So there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misapprehensions uh, for Job. The wicked are prospering, and he is suffering more than anybody he knows of. So in this final response, Job is going to uh, once again affirm God's sovereignty, just like he's done before. But he's going to disagree with Bildad that this sovereignty means he cannot come before God and bring his case. Um, For Job, God's sovereignty means uh, the exact opposite of what it means for Bildad. It means that God alone has the authority to declare Job's innocence. And God is the only authority to which a suffering man uh, can turn. In the first section, Job makes sure that his friends know that man's counsel doesn't have any power to save him from suffering or to help him in any way. <laughs> he wants them to know that they're, they're not any help to him. Job implies that all their counsel so far has been no help whatsoever. Verse 1 in, in chapter 26 says, Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. Oh, I love Job's sarcasm. Uh, in the most smart aleck way possible, he makes sure they know that they have done absolutely nothing that even remotely helped him. Uh, they have done nothing but add to his suffering. But this is, you know, this is just the tip of Job's sarcastic iceberg. He continues in verse 3, he says, How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? <laughs> it's like he's saying, uh, thank you so much for imparting all this great wisdom on me, fellas. Uh, you've done a really, really good job. Uh, we all know that I don't have wisdom of my own. So, you know, I'm just so thankful that you guys are here to show me the right way. Uh, you have truly declared sound knowledge to me. I mean, you can't get any more sarcastic than that. Uh, it just tickles me to death. He, uh, Job continues by asking where they got such wonderful wisdom. He asked whose breath has come out from, from them. Uh, so, uh, before before Job declares you know that God's sovereignty is the only foundation on which he can stand, the only hope he has to uh, ever be free of suffering, he, he makes sure that they know that what they have been offering is just stupid. Um, they have given him absolutely nothing that will help. All they've told him is that he deserves what he got and he should just except that God's punishing him in spite of the fact that God has previously declared him righteous. So God is sovereign. And so in the minds of his friends, that means God is arbitrary and can change his mind whenever he wants. Now that's important. If God wants to go back on his word, he has all power and authority to do that. Uh, If he decides to rescind Job's good, righteous standing, then Job can do nothing but, you know, just suck it up and take it. 
uh, bringing your case before God, that's just stupid. And so uh, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And this is what Job is going to directly deny. Not that God can do whatever he wants, but that God is arbitrarily free to basically make himself a liar by going back on his word. Job is going to show us that it's that exact sovereignty of God. That's what we can count on. That's how we know that God will never go back on his word. When he promises something, he'll never go back on it. He'll never act in a way that's contradictory to his nature. God is truly in control. So in reality, he's the only place Job can go to get relief from his suffering. God is the only authority who can truly judge Job's case because he's the only one that has true authority. For Job, this is this right here, this understanding of God's sovereignty and and how he keeps his promises is true wisdom. Understanding the sovereignty of God is the I mean it's the only basis for wisdom and the only hope for mankind. He he begins uh he's going to begin in chapter 5. I mean not chapter 5 but verse 5. He he's going to show that that God's sovereign over death itself. So rather than curl up and die, Job he's got to go to God with his case. He said verse 5 the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. What he's saying is death itself cannot hide from God's power. Job can't just hope to die and escape the sovereignty of God. Uh, There's no other power to which Job can be subject to. Even in death, God is on his throne. Even in death, Job will have to seek answers from God. There are no other gods. There are no other authorities to which Job can appeal. So God's sovereignty is Job's only hope. He can't hide from God's sovereignty or God's judgment just by dying because shield itself is naked before God. Um, Next, in verse 7, Job demonstrates that God is in control of all creation. Uh, first, he says that God created the heavens. Verse 7 says he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Uh, it was God who made all this, and therefore he owns it. He controls it. He has made everything just the way he decided, and there is nothing that goes on that's beyond his sight or his oversight. Uh, Verse 8 says, He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Um, What he's saying is that in the same way God controls... uh, everything else he controls the weather and the water and the clouds he can cover up the moon if he wants to he can he can use the clouds to give light or he can use the clouds to take light light away from the creation i mean he he's so sovereign that he is he's even in control of the light and the darkness uh there's absolutely nothing that escapes his power and control and job's affirming all this and and if all this that job is affirming is true then the only conclusion he can come to is that god purges evil in creation by calamity. Uh, in, in other words, God uses the devastation of suffering to purge evil from the creation. God's sovereign allowing of suffering and disaster is not just to punish, like his friends have said. You know, for them, the only reason something bad happens in God's sovereign you know, is because God's sovereign moral punishment is, is coming on those who've broken the law. Uh, in their worldview, 
view, only evil brings forth calamity and suffering. But Job finally begins to understand that God uses even the bad things for good. He uses them to purge the creation of evil. Verse uh, 11 says, the uh, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. That's the, the personification of evil, the sea monster. Verse 13 says, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. They were made good. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. When God rebukes, buddy, all of creation trembles. He calms the sea and shatters Rahab. And, uh, you know, Rahab's also called Leviathan in Isaiah 27. He is the personification of evil in the form of, you know, sea serpent. Um, by God's own hand, he purges the evil of the sea. And uh, the, the sea in ancient times was a figure for chaos. He purges that chaos. He destroys the monsters that lurk in the deep, so to speak. Um, it's by his sovereign power and his heavenly wind that he, he you know, they, they cause havoc in men's lives. Um, but they also cause destruction in the forces of evil in creation. Uh, so what he, he, he's showing that God is using the calamity and the suffering and the things that are going on. He's using them to purge the creation of his evil, of, of creation's evil, excuse me. If, if. If some of this is hard for you to understand, you know, hey, join the club. You know, I, I couldn't say that I understand how all this works out in reality, and this is how Job ends his final speech to build at. In verse 14, he says, you know, behold, these are but outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power. Who can understand? He just, I mean, who can understand? All these things that we're seeing. They're just the tip of the iceberg of God's ways. Man can't begin to understand the thunder of God's power and why he does the things that he does. Uh, but the idea is clear for Job's friends. Their religious worldview can't solve anything. Uh, it can't answer why God allows evil other than just to punish people. Uh, they can't make room for the fact that God works all things for good. They can't see how God would allow suffering to come upon those who are righteous. And they sure can't understand why a just God would allow, um, you know, would allow the wicked not to suffer. But Job has to come to this understanding. Job, he, he, he's come full circle to this finally understanding that God is working even the suffering in this world for, for good, to purge evil from the creation. He, he, Job, is, he's, he has to grapple with these issues because he doesn't have the luxury of sitting around thinking abstractly about theology. Uh, all this has hit him right where it hurts. Uh, he's in the midst of all this intense suffering. He... He's got a unique perspective on all, you know, the theology that his friends are giving him. Um, I'm all for theology, but it tends to, you know, it needs to be practical as well as it needs to hold to the truth in such a way that uh, it works itself out practically in the lives of believers as well. Job, you know, he has to see it in in light of what's going around on around in his life. He can't be satisfied with just uh, a neat and clean worldview. He's faced with the horrible and ugly realities that God's sovereignty brings into specific individuals' lives. All although 
you know, all this is true. Job also has to hold on to the truth that God is good and merciful and working for Job's good, even though he can't understand how. He has no idea. He ended uh, this chapter that way. Who can understand? This is why he has to bring his case to God. This is why he's so intent on having God hear his case. Uh, but he, he also can't agree with what his friends are telling him. And, I mean, you know, it's the same way with us. When suffering hits, uh, we may have a neat and clean worldview, a neat and clean theology about how God operates and what he's doing in the world. Uh, but we well know that, that his, his ways are higher than our ways. We have to grapple with the truths he has revealed to us in Scripture and subject our experiences to the authority of that Word of God. Um, all of you, you know, undoubtedly will agree uh, with this, to, to, to say that we need to hold fast to the Word of God even in the face of our experiences, and you're right to agree with that. But holding fast to it when the reality of suffering hits, um, it's a lot harder when you have to actually feel the pain of suffering. Um, but we're sure that God is in control and he's working for the good of those who love him and uh, those who are called according to his purpose. Um, many times in, in counseling situations, uh, when people are going through suffering, you know, as a person who counsels, uh, I mean, it almost sounds like a cliche, you know, like a little religious epithet that you say to try to make people feel better. And when you're in the midst of suffering, you know, I promise you, the last thing you want to hear is, well, don't worry, God's working it all out for your good. It's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> that's not what we want to hear. And it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a light switch to be flipped, and then all of a sudden all your pain goes away and all your suffering goes away. Uh, dealing with this is a fight. It's a battle. It's a fight to believe. It's a fight to trust in God's Word rather than what all the voices tell us. You have the world, the flesh, the devil. They all tell you, um, you know, you're not going to make it. You're not good enough. You're not going to be able to do this. It's never going to get any better. All these different things are coming at you all at once. And unless you have a biblically grounded worldview that you can fight with, Unless you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that you can pick up and start hacking away at these things, um, you're going to be a guaranteed casualty. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're immune to it either. Uh, it is a fight. It is a battle. It is um, a war. It's a war of the heart. It's a war of the mind that you, uh, you fight to trust in what God has said. And you fight to deny what your your heart and the world tells you. And that's the battle that we fight when we go through suffering.